But as we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 13. And it again reminds us that uh, even as we talk about something like the end times and second coming prophecy, that should affect the way we view death and funerals. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus dies and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So before we get to some of the passages about the rapture and others, there's just a practical aspect that we like to talk about when we do get into issues of prophecy. And that is, he was, of course, having taught them in the three weeks that he had been there that Jesus was returning and teaching a little bit about the second coming of Jesus. No doubt might have even been quoting from some of the passages in what's called the Olivet Discourse or the uh, discourse given on the Mount of Olives before he was crucified and so taught about the second coming. Well, here's the problem. Some of the people in Thessalonica were saying to themselves, well, we've lost people that have died. What about them? And so before he even gets into this whole question about what Jesus was teaching about the second coming, he wants them to recognize that because we believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and has ascended to the right hand of God, the Father, we now have an opportunity that even as indeed we have lost individuals, we should once again focus upon that. And Jesus actually gives us in Matthew 24, you might want to even keep your finger there if you want to, and talks about the fact that he would be coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Notice the difference between Jesus' first coming, born in a manger in Bethlehem, the second coming, coming with angels and all the rest, and power and glory, and uses the phrase son of man. So that harkens back to a vision that God had given to Daniel hundreds of years before, because the term son of man he uses now to describe himself, and in a sense shows the parallel between Matthew 24 and Daniel chapter 7. Matter of fact, oftentimes when we teach in a seminary, we will oftentimes teach Daniel and the book of Revelation together because of the connection there as well. And said that the angels would come with a loud trumpet call and gather the elect from these four winds. So that is part of which we'll look at in just a minute. And so, of course, they had heard these teachings. We don't know how much. They heard in the synagogue or in the teaching that he did outside of the synagogue. But now they're kind of wondering, okay, what about our family members that have already passed on? They've died. And so, again, if the elect were gathered, would this include those who have already died? Or did it only apply to the people that were alive at that time? And, of course, would those who died then rise later? So what's the progress and what's the order and the chronology? And would that in any way affect their hope of eternal life? These are questions maybe you're not thinking about, but you can imagine if you're just there in Thessalonica, you've had three weeks to hear the Apostle Paul. It's like hearing three messages by Jack Graham. Wasn't today an excellent message on Romans 8? You can't really go wrong when you preach on Romans 8, right? Who, you know, God is for us, who can be against us? But anyway, and so he's now helping to answer those questions about the timing 
and those kinds of things. But first, he just wanted them to be encouraged by the fact that if indeed Christ rose again and we are going to rise with him, that should help us to not grieve as those who have no hope. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have grief, but we shouldn't grieve as if that's the end of life. Now, let me deal with one other issue. He talks about those who are asleep. Um, matter of fact, when I wrote a book years ago, Life, Death, and Beyond, I felt that that was important to address because you do have some people that believe that when you die, it's called soul sleep. I don't believe that's biblically taught and all of that, but you can understand that this was a phraseology that was used at the time because the uh, pagans pretty much believed that you just went to sleep and that was it. Kind of like your humanist friends today, your atheist friends today. You live, you die, that's it. You know, you just dirt. You know, and so that was the thing. But this was the idea of sleep, to awake from the sleep. But I did give you one quote that was in our commentary that the church provided. In ancient paganism, they said, death was an eternal sleep from which one never awoke. One of the Roman poets said, an unending night to be slept through. So that doesn't give you much hope, does it? And so here, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, okay, for people in the pagan world, death was just the end. Here's from a Greek poet that they provided. Hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. And here he's actually explaining that we don't have that view. Here's another one from uh, an individual in the second century. I sorrowed and wept over your dear departed one as I wept over, did he miss my son? But really, there's nothing one can do in the face of such things, so comfort one another. So it just shows you the emptiness, indeed, of a world in which you don't believe there's ever life after death. And if nothing else, this particular message today, I hope, will encourage you to think about light the night. Think about talking to your friends. Maybe, like Suzanne's going to do, hand some of these books to some of our unsaved family members. Because they live in this world in which you live, you die, that's it. That is absolutely it. And that, I think, is not what Paul is trying to say. If anything, he doesn't want the Christians to weep about the loved one's death in a way that says there is no hope. But instead, recognizing that because death was not part of God's plan, there will be a time and when there is what? No more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. And we look forward to that day. So he doesn't say we shouldn't grieve, but we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve the loss. We hope that our loved ones will be with us um, in the age to come. But at the same time, even Lee Strobel talking about the fact that he just lost his older brother, to COVID-19 and quite frankly points out that um, he wasn't really sure if his own brother here's Lee Strobel one of the great kind of evangelist apologists of the 21st century not even sure about the salvation of his own son today he's speaking at First Baptist a couple weeks ago he was speaking in Fort Worth and when he spoke in Fort Worth he just simply asked how many of you have a close friend that has died to COVID-19 he said 80% of the hands went up so, 
Is this an opportunity to share the good news? I mean, people may be more open to hear the gospel than ever before. So, if anything, I really want to encourage you to see what we're talking about today, what Pastor Graham uh, certainly shared with us as a real motivation to make a difference and to share that with the people that you know. Let's continue on here because now in verse 15 we get in kind of the meat of the issue. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. And so now we come to a passage which uh, we have oftentimes referred to as the rapture. But again, let's go ahead and put it in the context. Here, these individuals, young believers in Thessalonica, wondering about, okay, what about those who have died? And so now they're asking questions about how does this play out in this timeline you've been talking about in terms of the second coming? And, of course, I will, as we go through this, acknowledge that there are some disagreements that people within different churches might have. Um, and so that is something I'll try to explain. But you've probably seen a timeline like this. And this was some of the material. You can obviously see that, first of all, we have the first coming of the Lord right here. And then we are now in the church age. We believe and teach in this church and teach at Dallas Seminary and Southwestern Baptist Seminary and all these other places that there is then the rapture and then this tribulation, then Christ coming again. And the first time he comes for his church, the second time he comes with his church. And then there's a millennium, a final battle and the new heavens and new earth. Now, for some of us that are pretty simple. I'm talking about guys. We kind of like things simple, right? We like simple things here. That, that timeline is probably enough. But I recognize some of you like more detail. So this is supposed to make you smile, maybe even laugh out loud. This is Tim LaHaye's kind of description of God's plan for the ages. And you can see that that gets a little more complicated uh, when you start going all the way from creation uh, to the new heavens. And if you don't think that one's enough, here's one that just simply takes just the book of Revelation and uh, deals with that in a very detailed sort of way. So, again, my goal here is to get you laughing a little bit. But if you, at the end, say, no, it would be probably good for us to go through that. I have taught on that years ago, but I recognize many of you were not here. And if you'd like to go through some of the end times prophecy, there are a lot of verses and a lot of context. And, of course, this is why our good friend Gary Frazier has a lot to talk about about because indeed there's a lot packed into the book of Daniel and an enormous amount packed into the book of Revelation, not to mention what we're looking at today, 1 Thessalonians and Matthew 24. So I want you to know that if you find me going through this fairly quickly and saying, yeah, I want some more, but some of you might say, okay, that's, I've heard enough. I don't want to hear any more. That is certainly to help you understand that there's a lot that we can talk about. But this passage is referring to what is called the rapture. Now, I get from some of my skeptical Christian friends, I don't see the word rapture there. No, you don't. Uh, but this idea of caught up 
comes from the Latin term from which we get the English term rapture. And this seems to be implying here that this is where people are caught up in the air. That's what it seems to be talking about. It does seem to those of us that look at this in a chronological way to have happened before the tribulation. That being said, I have other Christian friends who believe the rapture maybe takes place at the end of the tribulation. And I'll explain part of that because they interpret Matthew 24 a little differently, but that's fine. I'm not going to break fellowship with somebody that holds to that. I think if you look at the book of Revelation, maybe we'll do some of that next week if you're interested, you see that after you finish Revelation 1, 2, and 3, from Revelation 4 to nearly the end, uh, where are the Christians? You know, it's talking about churches and Christians, and then it gets real Jewish for a long period of time. And you say, where are the Christians? I think they're in heaven. But, you know, we can argue about that all day. But this is, again, the argument and what is oftentimes taught both at Dallas Theological Seminary, Southwestern Baptist Seminary, other Baptist seminaries. is certainly what is Pastor Graham has taught, and this is what Gary Frazier has taught here. Now, some individuals have said, well, not only does Paul talk about it here, but I think Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, because it talks about two women will be in the field grinding the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Two men are walking, one will be taken, one will be left. Now, for those of you that are older, and I mean a lot older, I'm talking people that have no hair or gray hair, you might remember the um, musician Larry Norman. Does anybody remember Larry Norman? Nobody remembers Larry Norman. Okay, yeah, there's a few. Actually, I actually see that hand. Um, and he had a song that we sang a lot in the 1970s. And one of the themes was about, uh, you know, uh, when we weren't ready is really the song. The idea that you had two men walking, one was taken, one was left. And so he used this phrase to assume that when Jesus is talking in Matthew 24, the one is taken is taken in the rapture. Now, as much as that was communicated in some of our commentary today from the church, I think you could make a better argument that really that is not describing the rapture. It's actually describing when Jesus returns again. And you might say, okay, why do you say that? Well, it turns out if you go back to Matthew 24, just before that, he's talking about Noah and the ark. Now, what's the story of Noah and the ark? judgment on the earth, right? Now, it is interesting. We've sort of modified that now. Whenever I go to a church, lots of times to speak, they'll show me the youth room and the kids' room and almost always got a picture of the ark and they've got Noah and the animals. And I'm always thinking, boy, we sure have sanitized that because if you think about this, you know, yeah, let's tell the young kids that here is the ark of the few people that were saved while God drowned all these sinners and destroyed all of life. I mean, just think about that. That's really the message, but we've kind of sanitized that. But in Matthew 24, the story is what? About such evil in the world that God destroyed almost all of the living things on this planet, except for eight on the ark and those animals. And so in the context, I think what it is probably talking about is one is left, but one is taken to what? Judgment. And I think that's probably a better explanation. But if nothing else, we can see that here you can see different ways in which Christians maybe have interpreted that. And so that's why some people say, well, you know, you got pre-millennial because they believe that the millennial happens first. You have some that are post-millennial. 
But I suspect we have some people in this room that are pan-millennial. It's all going to pan out in the end, and I have no idea how this all fits. But nevertheless, he does go into some more detail about that because he helps them understand that this idea of rising again maybe harkens back to what Jesus did talk about, and that is possibly that when he talks about they will rise again in the last day, that could be the rapture, it could be the second coming, could be the final battle. But what he's trying to do is not get into teaching all this theological information, but simply reassuring them that God's got it taken care of, right? And if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? And if there is no condemnation, then we should be excited about what that is. But again, teaches that the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are still alive will then not go before them. But then as those who are alive, that's the case. But if you look out there at a cemetery and see some people taken off real quickly, I think you've got an answer to what is happening next, right? Um, and then they all gather together with Christ in the air. And so it gives you a little bit of a sense there as well. Whether you're alive at the time of the rapture or you die in Christ, um, certainly we recognize that if we're in Christ, then indeed we should be hopeful of his return. Thank you, Pastor Graham, for talking about eternal security. I cannot tell you the number of memes I'm seeing out on Facebook and various websites and others that say that if you aren't careful, you can sin and lose your salvation. And I just don't know where that comes from. You know, how long is eternal life? I think it's eternal, you know. And it has been certainly very helpful that there have been some very outstanding individuals over these last few years that have spoken out on this idea of eternal security when there are so many people saying you can lose your salvation. And I just don't know, in light of what we looked at in John 10, Romans 8, and all sorts of other passages, how you would come to any other conclusion. So, we might recognize we may struggle in spiritual battles here on earth, but we're on the winning side. We're what? More than conquerors. And indeed, Christ's army will come with power and glory. So, when you are convicted by Satan about your sin and talking about your past, you just tell him about what? His future. So, again, you can see that pastor's message fit perfectly with what we have here as well. Finally, we do need to encourage one another, and that's one last verse in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That is that uh, we can get down to the detail and the minutia of end times prophecy, but the real issue was <clears throat> he's communicating this to believers who are being persecuted. And even though they were staying strong in their faith, which we talked about last time, they still needed encouragement. And so this is the encouragement we can give to one another. You know, we may not know all the details. We may not have it all locked down. And we certainly maybe need another dose of Gary Frazier or another dose of good uh, Bible prophecy teaching from Jack Graham. But the bottom line is we do know who wins. We know what happens. And we certainly need encouragement. And the goal, I think, really of prophecy is to encourage the believers but also to challenge the non-believers. Do you want to be left behind? Is there a time when you would regret that this indeed decision that someone asked you to make, you never made? 
And if nothing else, that is, I think, the goal that we have here in terms of the message today. Paul assured them that they needn't worry about those who died in Christ. They needn't grieve the way that unbelievers grieve the deaths of family and friends because we have the unique hope of a future resurrection. And so again, those who die before Christ have the exact same hope as those who are alive. That's the message he's giving to them. All believers, both those who've died in Christ and those who are still alive at the rapture, will always be with Christ. And in Scripture, this is what we call the ultimate blessedness or the blessed hope. And that's, of course, in the New Testament, being with Christ because Christ is with God. I give you one from the book of Numbers. It's very interesting. And the reason I wanted to give it to you is because we hear Pastor Graham use it so often. It was the daily blessing that the priest prayed over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's how we ended the message today. And it comes from the book of Numbers. So again, this book of Revelation describes a new heaven and a new earth. We'll have a new body. There'll be no barriers. Uh, There will be no longer pain and suffering and tears and death. No more death, mourning, sorrow, pain, because now we're with God in a beautiful place here on earth. And this is the source of our hope in suffering. We may suffer now. We may face persecution now. We may face a lot of discouragement, but we should encourage one another because ultimately we can have peace in the midst of the storm. And there will eventually be a time when there are no more storms and we can encourage one another with this hope. And that's really the message today of First Thessalonians chapter 4. But in the few minutes I have remaining, let me just mention real quickly about this book. If you're not familiar, Lee Strobel became a Christian in 1981. Um, he graduated from the University of Missouri, journalist, uh, Yale Law School, uh, was um, an award-winning journalist at the Chicago Tribune, very skeptical. I mean, his favorite line is, is uh, if your mother says, I love you, uh, check it out, get two sources. You know, I mean, just don't believe anything. And when his wife became a Christian, and I've met her, That caused him to investigate this, and he became a Christian. And, of course, he's best known for the book, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter, The Case for Creation, and many more. 22 million copies of his book, nation uh, worldwide. And this book has about 10 chapters, which uh, deal with near-death encounters. I'll read one or two of those. A discussion about heaven, a discussion about hell, a whole issue of reincarnation, and these interviews. One of the things that Lee Strobel does so well is he doesn't just tell you what he thinks. He interviews the best people for each one of these particular topics. And if you wonder who some of those individuals are, uh, Clay Butler-Jones talks about immortality. Sharon Burks talks about neurophysiology and really the neurophysiological evidence that there's a soul. John Burke, who's written probably more on near-death encounters than almost anybody else. Chad Meister has been on my program. Matter of fact, a good friend uh, who actually gives talks about the pyramid of salvation, which I'm going to ignore just in the interest of time. Scott McKnight. Uh, really answers a lot of questions about heaven. Paul Copen, who also has been on my program, matter of fact, most of these people have, by the way, uh, on the subject of hell and judgment. Doug Groteis used to be on probe staff, but also has been an individual interview quite often on the issues of reincarnation. And then ending with a really poignant interview with Luis Palau before he died. 
In fact, I think it's the last interview Luis Palau did before he died, kind of the um, Billy Graham of the evangelistic world. And so I thought I'd just uh, so quickly mention some of these. You could read these in uh, them in more detail. But one of those comes from John Burke, in which he, um, in his book, talks about this woman who was in uh, England at the Memorial Hospital. And she says, as blood drained from my body, so did my will to live. I heard a pop sound. Suddenly the pain stopped. I had a very clear view of my body. She had an out-of-body experience as they were hooking up transfusions. The fact that I was having these thoughts within inches of the ceiling didn't bother me or confuse me. And she then eventually had the kind of experience that many people have had of traveling down a long, dark tunnel, proceeding at a speed of light to light, feeling a sense of calm, uh, then even seeing a return, kind of a, a little bit of a review of her life passing before her and a number of other things. And she spent a few minutes, if you will, as she said, on the other side. And while I was out of my body in the ER, she said, I noticed a red label on the side of the blade of the ceiling fan facing the top. I convinced a nurse to get a tall ladder and see for herself the red sticker whose appearance I described in great deal detail on the hidden side of the emergency room ceiling fan. The nurse and an orderly saw the sticker confirming all the details of the appearance. And then he, in the interview, talks with John Burke about the fact that there have been other research studies that have been done uh, in which we find that uh, these uh, records are things that they would know. People that were blind that actually saw things happening in the emergency rooms and things of that nature, which is pretty amazing. Uh, one in particular here where this uh, uh, heart attack, you have, do I have that one there, page 66, yes, right, in which Maria was unconscious, uh, drifted through the ceiling outside the hospital, then she saw a tennis shoe on the hospital's third story window ledge. Well, how did she describe it? A man's shoe, left-footed, dark blue with a wear mark over the little toe and a shoelace tucked under the heel, uh, they investigated and completely corroborated that. And then point out that some of the other studies, Janice Holden has studied uh, 93 uh, patients with near-death encounters, and uh, a remarkable 92% of those were completely accurate. Another 6% were uh, fairly accurate, but maybe with uh, an error here or there. And then has just story after story from J.P. Moreland, who's going to be on my program in the future, Gary Habermas, who's been as well, uh, talking about one uh, woman who registered with an absence of brain waves with no vital signs, declared dead, being wheeled to the morgue when she regained consciousness. She accurately described the resuscitation procedures and um, all of that. A woman on her deathbed left her body um, and then overheard her brother-in-law in the other room wait around to see if she was going to kick the bucket. Later, embarrassed him by telling them. And one of the things I said to uh, Lee Strobel is, is, you know, if you're in a hospital, you're working in the, uh, as an orderly or something like that, um, if somebody's in a coma or even if you think they're dead, you, still, you know, they still might necessarily know what you're saying here. And just story after story of those, I won't wear us out because we're getting kind of close on time, but lots of stories of near-death encounters.
Now, the reason I put this book up here, it's a book written by, oh, me, back in 1980. Um, and the reason I put it up there is back in 1980, I was raising some questions. And as a matter of fact, I mentioned it with Lee Strobel. Think about it. He didn't become a Christian until 1981. My book came out in 1980. And the reason it did is we had these kinds of stories. But there was a man by the name of Raymond Moody who wrote Life After Life, in which everybody had positive experiences. And I said, that doesn't fit with biblical ideas. Now, again, these people are closer to death. And, you know, again, in Hebrews it says, uh, it is appointed man to die once, and then after that comes the judgment. Well, these people are closer to death than most of us in the room probably have been, although some of you may have had near-death encounters as well. So just the fact that some of them had pleasant experiences doesn't necessarily invalidate the Scriptures. But in this book, he goes on to say that now since 1980, which was... 42 years ago almost, um, you have a lot more studies, and we do see that some people have very hellish, unpleasant experiences. And some of these people come back, and it's what's so interesting, sometimes they're atheists who don't believe in God, and they come back and say, I'm a believer now in something, I don't know what I'm believing in, but something's going on here. And so again, I tried to explain that some of these experiences could be explained away in terms of physiological phenomenon, even psychological phenomenon, even pharmacological explanations, because sometimes people are on various kinds of drugs. But I gave you just a few examples, and in my book, 40 years ago, I give you some examples that can't be really explained away as something more than just some kind of brain memory. And so that's important to recognize. But then he moves past this idea of near-death encounters to say, okay, what does the Bible actually teach about this? And so that's where Scott McKnight is interviewed and then has what he calls the seven on heaven. You know, will there be pets in heaven? Uh, will there be marriage in heaven? Will there be rewards in heaven? Is purgatory biblical? Should Christians be cremated? What about children who die and who will be in heaven? So some really important questions that sometimes people ask. I'll pick out one. What about pets in heaven? Well, again, the answer sometimes has come back that, well... If that would be to your happiness, then I don't know, maybe Tiger will be there, maybe Birdie will be there, maybe, you know, something will be there. I don't know, that's a possibility. I've pointed out in a previous presentation that J.P. Moreland, who'll be on my program pretty soon, is talking about the fact that if you look at before the Enlightenment, there was a belief among Christians that though we have a soul created in God's image, they also believed there was a soulish aspect to animals. But by the time you got first to the Enlightenment and then, of course, to Charles Darwin, they eliminated that idea. So is it possible? Yeah, it's certainly possible. Are there animals in the garden? Yes. Are there animals in the new heavens and the new earth? Yes. Is it possible that some of those pets that you love so much are there? Quite possibly. And he goes into it in more detail. Deals with a lot of these other very important issues because those are topics that desperately need to be addressed. And then talks about the whole issue, of course, of hell. And he really felt the need to cover that. And as I said with, uh, again, Lee Strobel, Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. He talks more about the idea of judgment and the coming judgment than he does even about how glorious heaven is. 
We had a speaker years ago at the men's retreat. I know you women don't get to hear that, but hey, we're going to get to hear what goes on this Thursday. We had a speaker years ago at the men's retreat that said, look, I think there's a reason why the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about heaven. Because if you really knew what heaven was like, you'd probably cross the street without looking both ways. You'd, you'd probably think about uh, rock climbing without a rope. Um, you know, there, there is a sense in which you'd want to go. And when you read these stories, these people, a lot of them don't want to come back. I mean, there is something about bliss and being freed from a pain-filled body that causes us to um, really be wanting to leave this earth. But we are here. You know, the moment you became a Christian, God could have taken you to heaven, right? Why didn't he? Because you have work to do here. You have a calling to do here. And so that is certainly the case. I know you probably have some more questions. And if some of you are interested, next week we could go into those. I think this is a very good book to give to a non-Christian. Because if they get their way through even the first chapter about immortality, even if they're really scientifically oriented, second chapter deals with the idea that really neurophysiology... I know what Steven Pinker says at Harvard University, neurophysiology has proved there's no soul. But if you look at chapter two, you'll see that really neurophysiology is proving there is a soul. There is a mind to the brain. There is the brain, that's like a computer, but then who's operating the computer? Uh, that would be you. That would be that mind on that. And so this would be a very good book to actually give to a non-Christian, then near-death encounters, and they say, oh, that's just a bunch of hooey. You go, no, oh, no, these are pretty good uh, references. And then they might stay to read about heaven and about hell and about reincarnation and about, you know, deathbed experiences. And it certainly could be very useful in terms of your evangelism. But if you say, look, I've got a lot of questions about heaven, um, maybe next week I'll bring in Randy Alcorn's book because it's like a bookstop here. It tries to answer everything that you could possibly imagine. Lee Strobel, of course, did an hour interview with us last week, so you can find it on that. If you want to go way back, we gave Randy Alcorn, because the book was so thick, two hours to answer all the questions about heaven. And I do commend to you some of these books. So this would be a great evangelistic book for you to read. And then if you think it would be helpful, pass on to some of your non-Christian friends, because a lot of people right now are thinking about death because of the pandemic and all of the issues involved there. But if you find yourself saying, I've got a lot of questions about heaven and I'd like to know more about that, I think Randy Elkhorn's book may be the best one out there. With that, let me uh, turn it back over to Parker, and um, maybe next week we'll get into a few more of those questions.